Hello and welcome to The Natural Evolution, produced by Rebel Health Tribe, a radio show focused on providing you with inspiration, education, and tools for true healing and transformation. I'm Michael, and I'll be your guide on this adventure as together we explore the very nature of the healing journey. And we're live. I am here with Dr. Cynthia Lee. Dr. Lee, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is going to be very fun and interesting, and we're probably going to go to some cool places that will not be touched on the other episodes. So before we get started, I just want to give you a little intro. Dr. Cynthia Lee is a physician and best-selling author of Brave New Medicine, a book that actually sits on my nightstand, a very personal memoir of her healing journey through a disabling autoimmune condition that took her from conventional medicine and public health to integrative, functional, and intuitive medicine. She also serves as faculty for Rachel Remen's Healer's Art Program at UC San Francisco School of Medicine, where she shares her hard-won wisdom with medical residents in training. I want to ask you a question about that later, so I'm going to leave this bookmarked. Um, You mentioned that you had a journey from conventional medicine and public health through to integrative and functional medicine towards intuitive medicine. That didn't happen overnight. So I'm curious, I guess the first question would be, what drew you to medicine in the first place? Did you want to be a doctor when you were growing up? First place, no. I was quite lost actually as a child. I mean, I was the second child of four. You know, my parents were first generation immigrants from China and Taiwan. Um, there was very much this culture of uh, love, but it was, you know, it was kind of indirect and more formal. Um, the Chinese culture just didn't express. Um, affection very directly. And I grew up in an evangelical community in Texas. And the, again, the teachings were all about love and the community was very loving. But this notion of God and heaven and hell, it loomed very, very large. Hell loomed very large for me um, in my upbringing. And um, I just, I had a lot of fear. I was also a very sensitive child. So I felt like I was just kind of barely getting by in life. So I didn't have a lot of dreams. In some ways, it felt kind of accidental. Um, But I, by default, went to college because I didn't know what else I wanted to do. And it was the local school. It was the University of Texas. And at that time, literally, it was a postcard in the mail if you were in a certain, you know, top percentage of your class. So I went and it was there, you know, it's, it was 50,000 students from all different backgrounds. And I started taking classes and really getting engaged with them. And I should say also, I fell in love for the first time, right? So it's the first time I was not invisible. I, I grew up in a very white community in Texas. And so suddenly people saw me, you know, guys saw me and um, I had my first boyfriend. And so I was like totally in love. So I have to say that the opening to love also translated into, I sort of loved what I was learning. So I kind of dove deep into the subject matters and thought I was going to become a linguist. I was really good at foreign languages Mm. and I was studying Russian at the time and I was reading Tolstoy in Russian. And so I was just like, oh, I'm going to do something with languages. I, I was also very fascinated by the classics, Latin, Greek, um, ancient wisdom, you know, which at the time I didn't realize that's what it was, but I was really interested in ancient wisdoms. 
And that's what I thought I was going to do. Then it was a science elective. I took organic chemistry only because my racquetball partner, she was pre-med. And so I, she would play with these little 3D structures. They look like, you know, tinker toys. And I just thought, you know, I'll just take it for that. And I didn't know it was a weed out class for pre-med students. I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. Um, and I loved it. Not only loved it, but I thrived in it. So it was the first time I began to realize that science also was a language. It was really a language about union and then you know coming together and then, and then merging with a, a larger tapestry, right? And then kind of coming together. It was just this kind of constant, it was literally like forming words. So that's what brought me to medicine. And I have to say the other thread that was a little bit invisible was this existential fear that I had grown up with, uh, with heaven and hell, was how do we reduce suffering, or how do we reduce hell on earth, and um, what the hell is going to happen to my soul, <laughs> you know, like, and I went into the halls of medicine to look for those answers about the human condition, um, and about alleviating suffering. That's interesting, you, you stumbled upon yeah. Organic chem, that is not a cakewalk class uh, that was involved in my master's program, and it was probably the hardest class that I took. So that you just stumbled into it to play with Tinker Toys, and it ended up being something that was that came pretty easily to you or natural to you. Like it was fascinating and interesting. You were in Austin? Yes. Yeah. Um, beautiful. That's a beautiful campus there. I like, uh, yeah. I'm a fan. Um, so languages are fascinating too. I am struggling through beginner Italian right now. And that's another interesting angle to to go at life from, but that's I've never heard that analogy made before that that science is a language. I've heard it with mathematics, and there's a lot of math in science, but um, it really is. It's kind of the language of nature. And um, so you, you went into that. And medical wise, did you have any idea when you were going through medical school and and doing everything that entails with medical school, post medical school, residency stuff like that? Did you know of aspects of integrative medicine or, or other forms of medicine, like Chinese yeah. medicine or anything else at all. It was just straight Western medicine. Yeah. And what was interesting about my family is that my grandmother, my maternal grandmother was a doctor in Taiwan, uh, in China before that, but also in Taiwan when they, when they moved there and she was a Western doctor. So it was really oh, wow. unusual for women, even at that time to go to college. Um, but she went to college. She had an older brother who was really prescient and everything. And he said, if you study well, you should go to medical school. And if you go to medical school, you should study Western medicine. It's the, it's the medicine of the future. So what was interesting was that she, she actually excelled and became an OBGYN as well as a pediatrician. They kind of had this, this dual specialty there. And, um, but she was uh, very, very skeptical of anything beyond hard science. So I was raised in that. And then, you know, the evangelical community yeah, yeah. very black and white. Mm -hmm. So I was raised in a very concrete analytical uh, framework. And so when I went into um, medical school, the only exposure I had to anything that was alternative was um, my younger brother had acupuncture when he was a young kid, you know, for a condition that just didn't respond to anything else. And he actually responded. We thought it was more that he was afraid of the needles. And so it was sort of this placebo effect that he was really motivated to heal his condition. 
Um, but that really, that was it. That Interesting. Was it. Mm -hmm. And your health crisis too, one first one, very long. And it came on, you were practicing medicine. What type of medicines? Do you have a specialty? Internal medicine. So I was a specialist in chronic conditions. Interesting. <laughs> and what were your first, I know a bit, but everybody else doesn't. So what were your first onset? Like, when did you know something wasn't right? Well, you know, it came really when I thought I was at the top of the world, right? I had been married. We had just had our first child. We had taken also a trip around the world. Before I got pregnant, we had taken a six-month trip around the world uh, with no itinerary. Like it was the freest point in my life up until that point. Right? It was just, oh my God, like the world is our oyster. Let's go. I was just a few years out of residency. I felt like I was mastering, you know, like my calling. So it was three months after my first daughter was born that I started feeling really off. And it was, you know, heart racing, palpitations, lightheadedness. And of course, you know, most people just said, well, you're postpartum. This is totally normal. And of course you're tired. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you know, I went through a, a long period of denial um, until the symptoms got bad enough. And then I realized that I had an autoimmune thyroid condition. So that was the beginning of that. So it was autoimmune thyroid, like Hashimoto's? Uh, yes. So in the postpartum period, it's technically called postpartum thyroiditis, but it's okay. the same um, pathophysiology. Okay. Yeah. So you had fatigue and heart palpitations and things were just off. And this, mm -hmm. at first, did you start with like a convention? I don't, I don't even honestly know yeah. what the conventional approach is to yeah. that condition, yeah. but. I went, I did what a lot of people would do. And also certainly what a, a doctor would do. I found the top notch uh, endocrinologist, like, you mm -hmm. know, the thyroid specialist, um, at an academic institution and uh, saw him. So I, there are medications. So initially I was overactive and there were medications to kind of help, you know, suppress mm. the symptoms, uh, slow the heart rate down to help me sleep. And then, um, then I fell underactive. So there were, you know, supplements yeah. to support my thyroid. And unlike chronic Hashimoto's, postpartum thyroiditis, often resolves in about a year. And so that's what happened to me, at least numbers wise. Um, my numbers normalized, I tapered off my levothyroxine, uh, but I still actually had the symptoms. I still felt pretty much the same as I had um, Fatigue and... for the rest of the year, yeah. And then this, this <laughs> became much more severe, as I know from um, those who don't know, my wife has multiple autoimmune conditions. And when she was at the worst in her most recent flare, uh, she read Dr. Lee's book and I would get daily updates from what she read. She was narrating it for me as she was going through it. But so I know this, this became very severe and was there fear or was it frustration when things kept progressing and getting worse and you were feeling worse? Um, how did that feel? Like, what was your experience of that? Now we talked before we were on air a little about you're the doctor, you're not supposed to get sick. So I'm sure there was that component to it too. But I mean, that's scary. I've been through it now. And it's scary. Yeah. It well, so the way it happened with me was that the symptoms of not sleeping and having heart racing, that didn't progressively get worse, it actually started getting better. Okay. And, um, and I was still completely functional at that point. Then my husband, our young daughter, she was two years old at the time, and I took a trip to Beijing. My parents had moved back to China 
and we went to visit them. And um, I had a, I call it a sudden disturbance, but we were in a dumpling house in downtown Beijing. And I had a sudden episode where, you know, this energy shot through me, my heart started pounding and I lost consciousness. So when I came to, I was in an ER in um, downtown Beijing and I woke to this body that I didn't actually recognize. You know, my whole body was inflamed and pain, totally weak. And then I was in perpetual vertigo. I didn't know, of course, at that time, but that was the abrupt onset of what would be, you know, 10 pretty grueling years of chronic fatigue syndrome, dysautonomia, where the, you know, autonomic nervous system is really out of whack. Um, So it kind of, I kind of went from, you know, like, Better, 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 bam. Sudden. Yeah, so the fear was um, tremendous and it was very sudden as well. Beyond the the physical crisis and even the medical crisis, which I would wrap fear into that, was a real existential crisis because the longer it continued, the more I went to see specialist after specialist after specialist, the more I could not answer my own questions. And I was always questioning, is this in my mind? Right. It was really an existential question and crisis because I didn't fit into my own paradigm of what reality was. And I have to say, I stayed there for a long time until I became desperate enough to realize that I had to try differently and I had to think differently. So it was not enlightened by any means. It was definitely through the back door, uh, having my arms pinned literally actually to the bed and figuring out how to start from square one. And wow. That, uh, how long were you in Beijing for after that happened? Did you come right back or did you stay there for? I came, well, we had a flight like three or four days later. Oh, and wow. I terrified. I was terrified, you know, because it was a yeah. 13 hour flight. Yeah. Um, I had my first bona fide panic attack on that plane. But you know what? I made it. I made it back. And I was really glad to have been back. I just wanted to be in my bed with medical, you know, mm. medical system that I understood. But uh, yeah, and it was crazy. I think I didn't know how, again, I was ignorant at the time. I, I didn't know how severe things were. You know? Or would get or how long it would last. Right. Or, so, yeah. You know, so I did get on that plane and I'm actually yeah. glad I got it. And so you took a, a pretty conventional approach to trying to get well for a while. Yes. And people don't, I, if they're unfamiliar with the conditions you're describing, like this is debilitating, like you have a little girl mm-hmm. and a new career yes. and you're unable to be mom or doctor. Right. Oh, and I should add one other piece, critical piece to that was when I was in the ER in Beijing, mm-hmm. um, I also learned that I was newly pregnant with my second child. So mm-hmm. I'm also pregnant. Pregnant and mom and doctor and can't get out of bed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it was it was terrifying, and there were really really dark times, right? Where I just thought I I can't actually tolerate this anymore. I just can't tolerate it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was pregnant, and I had um, a young kid. So the you know my role as a mother is actually what kept me from making certain choices that I, I don't know what would happen, right? Had I not over those first because this went on about ten years, correct? Yes. And I would say it was kind of like this, you know, but it was overall slowly up. Yeah. 
Or slowly better over 10 yeah. years. Well, well, yeah, because over those yeah, 10 yeah. years, I'm also then yeah. learning, learning new things to do and learning about, oh, functional medicine. Mm. What is that? And yeah. Hey, if you're enjoying the show, make sure you head over to rebelhealthtribe.com backslash kit. That's K-I-T and grab the RHT starter kit, which includes a sampler of four free videos from our professional masterclasses and webinars, the RHT healthy sleep guide, the Wellness Vault coupon book, which will save you money on all of our favorite health-related tools and resources, a professional product guide, and a coupon for 15% off your first order in our shop. That's rebelhealthtribe.com backslash kit, K-I-T, and you'll get all that delivered right away. Also, if you're on Facebook, we've got a fun, engaging, and supportive group over there as well with thousands of health seekers just like yourself. Just search for Rebel Health Tribe and you'll find us. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. What was your first introduction there? So how long was it from the onset until you started to look at integrative or functional approach, like start hearing about or learning about or exploring those things? Was it pretty quick? Like I need to find a way to get better? Or was it like, is there anything out there that can, and you just were at a desperate point where you started to. My entry into that was uh, an acupuncturist. Okay. I really didn't know anything about, I mean, as far as I knew about Western medicine, it was just, you know, what I had been trained in. I didn't yeah. know about integrative and functional medicine. Um, I also didn't look, you know, I didn't, I was really not wanting to be online and digging stuff. And where, from where I was, the more I looked, the more fear I had. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I felt paralyzed by the amount of information. So I actually sought out an acupuncturist that was recommended to me by a really, really good friend who was in acupuncture school. So um, he was my entry into it and uh, Bob Levine, and he's still practicing. I think he's near retiring now, Uh, but he became not just my acupuncturist, but really a mentor. And each time when I was really at my low and I was very brittle, I went and saw him for treatments every week. And he was always actually kind of checking in saying, oh, you know, like there's some really gentle Qigong practices, you know, you could do. And I was like, oh, Qigong, whatever, you know, Um, I'm just going to come see you every week. And I would do herbs, you know, I was doing herbs. Um, But I was then slowly, slowly learning about root causes. And I would say the other way in was environmental health. I had been doing some environmental health research and advocacy when I was pregnant the first time, you know, really becoming aware that, oh, there's chemicals in the environment that are harmful. Um, So the environmental health got me into much more of an ecological paradigm of health of how to approach my body. Like, oh, my body is an ecosystem. How do I begin to think of my body in terms of systems? Um, You know, which is really how to address these chronic complex conditions like dysautonomia and chronic fatigue syndrome. So um, it was very stepwise like that. It wasn't until I was actually ready to think about going back into clinical medicine, I mean, very, very part-time, but I was like, how do I integrate what I've learned, you know, short of going to acupuncture, you know, four years of um, Chinese medicine school, how do I begin to incorporate what I've learned into clinical practice? What does that look like? And I started shadowing um, different alternative MDs. And um, one of them said, you know, it sounds like you're really interested in functional medicine. So when I was finally able to take a short trip down to LA, there was a, a foundational course in functional medicine, a 
by the Institute for Functional Medicine. That was my real intro. And I remember sitting there, I was barely able to sit through, you know, even two or three hours a day of the lectures. But at the time, it was still relatively small. Um, there were probably about 100 people in the Remember audience. who your teacher was? And well, there's multiple. Like Mark, oh, okay. Hyman, Mark Hyman was like the opening speaker. Yeah. But some of the core faculty of ISM yeah. were there. I was like, oh my God, I don't have to figure out this paradigm. Like it's been worked yeah. out. People have been practicing this. Having to learn practice. something is different than having to create it. Yeah. And having to apply it to somebody within yeah. a fixed time frame. Right? Yeah. So then, of course, as I was studying that, I was also learning more about my own health and how do I navigate that. And so what happened was I went from having very little to no you know, options in conventional medicine to having infinite options in functional and integrative medicine. And I actually became very overwhelmed. Um, my system was you know, very sensitive and I would take whatever protocol that they you know, recommended and I would crash too. Like, so that's actually what very, very reluctantly took me into intuitive medicine. What does intuitive medicine mean when you say, how, what do you mean by intuitive medicine? Because I, I, there's a lot of definitions that could float around there. I just want to get yeah, everybody on the so, same page. Uh, so it's different than medical intuition. And again, I'm kind of learning these as I go. Medical intuition is usually when you seek out, you know, someone who's basically clairvoyant, right? Intuitive, who's been trained to kind of scan the body and to translate that into what's going on. So my foot into the door with that was, was seeing a medical intuitive healer, Martine Blochio. And again, with that, I was so reluctant and I, I was also afraid. I was really afraid. That's one I still have a hard time with. And I know people who will swear upside down, left, right, sideways by it. And it's like, that's where my edge is I right now. I was very afraid, but again, I was completely desperate. And so from the first time that, again, a very trusted friend, very level-headed friend who had autoimmune stuff that, you know, she just hit a wall. She said, you know what, she was really, really helpful. I should say also what I, the person I introduced to my book, Pia Aiken, was a friend of ours who was clairvoyant. And she was the one who opened me up to the fact that, oh, like everything is energy. And I need to start thinking about my body as energy and not just like kind of a fixed, uh, I don't know, a mass of matter that's, you know, not going to change or going to change very, very slowly. Um, so she was, I already had that introduction. I was skeptical and afraid, but it was very much about, oh, that's her. It's not me. And then when I got desperate enough with my health, everything plateaued. I was already into functional and integrated medicine. I still wasn't getting answers. Then after a year of being introduced to the possibility of a medical intuitive and a specific one, I finally made the appointment. <laughs> And when she, when I, when I had the appointment, she scanned my body and was telling me things that, you know, I had experienced, but I couldn't put into words. And it was so detailed that it blew me into a new world of what was possible. Again, I, I had no expectations about whether it would help me or not. Um, and, and then the other thing was she gave me a protocol. I tried it. I actually crashed like really bad. And I gave her the feedback and she said, oh my God, you know, I didn't realize that. What I realized also was I actually need to start being empowered in my own healing. But then from that point on, actually a lot of the protocols that she gave me were I was actually experiencing healing. 
And I realized that some of the supplements that I was doing, there was a certain order that I wasn't aware of yet. I can't do probiotics right now, even though everyone's like, hey, balance your gut flora. Like somehow I was responding negatively to it. So, okay. Like there's an importance in terms of sequence. So what I learned from her and also from Pia was that I can develop my own intuition. It's like art or music. So, you know what, they're born gifted and you know what, um, there are musicians who are born gifted, but all of us can learn it if we practice, if we right, apply ourselves and on, on a largely daily basis. So um, that's what took me into intuitive medicine. So when I say that is that I still, you know, I'm a functional and integrative doctor. When I come to something that feels gray or I don't actually know which way to sort of direct the patient, um, I will actually go into my intuitive, I'll, I'll tap into that. And it feels like tapping into this, I don't know, energetic database. Um, it's hard to explain. And I know that it sounds a little bit crazy, you know, for people who are not, uh, have not been exposed to it. But there's something that happens that we all have access to. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, and then I learned also through my Qigong practice, which uh, is a, was another a really important piece of my own healing. Uh, wisdom, healing, Qigong, I began to practice every day. So through that really began to um, to experience the subtle sensations that I was receiving, like literally as information. And the, the fascinating thing about energy, and again, I, I think of it very pragmatically. I think of it in terms of quantum science. Mm -hmm. The energy is just, it's so fluid, right? Yeah. You know, it's like light travels around the earth seven times in a second, you know? And I thought, okay, if I can rationalize that, okay, it's possible that I could receive some energetic information. And if I learn how to interpret the sensations I have in my body, maybe I can apply that in my doctor-patient relationship. So it really takes the doctor-patient relationship into a completely different dimension. And what I also realized is that I think a lot of us doctors are already doing that. We're just not aware. We're not aware that we're actually using our intuition, mm -hmm. you know, because there's a lot of times when labs and things don't, don't really express anything, but then doctors will be like, you know what, I'm going to treat you for that anyways. And then it ends up being right, sort of the right path. So, um, yeah, so I feel like it's, you know, it's not even anything that's different. It's kind of bringing me back into the kind of doctor that I thought I was going into training for when I signed up for medical school. Accomplishing the things that you had wanted to then just in a way that you had no idea existed. In the Qigong, um, for those who don't know, I never even really know how to explain it, but it's energy movement in the body or energy cultivation practices is kind of how I would phrase it. Um, it comes from traditional Chinese medicine or Taoism. I think there's a lot of different lines. Um, what I've noticed personally regarding how you're talking about this space of intuition or this access point and my own Qigong practice is that the more consistent I am and regular with the Qigong practice, it's almost like I have more access or easier access to that as well. And it's where the ideas come from. It's where the solutions come from. Like I, my experience is that I can't will an answer out of it necessarily, but that things kind of just, when I'm not trying, 
So that's like my interpretation of that same experience is that it's like when I'm not trying necessarily that things come from somewhere and that the more open I am and the more I practice those types of things, the, the more open that door seems to be and the things come more easily or more frequently. But the, the Qigong you mentioned, uh, what is the specific? Yeah, the lineage is um, Zunun Qigong. Um, and then in English, it's translated to Wisdom Healing Qigong. What was beautiful about Master Ming Tong is not just his teachings, but they're available. They're all online, even. Yeah, you know, Ken, I've, I've got his site bookmarked right now. Yeah, seven some years ago when I started, mm. he was one of the very few people who was available online. So the saving grace for me was, you know, I couldn't really get out of my house. I was largely housebound for 10 years and it was available right right then and there. I mean, you know, I had to have a lot of just commitment to mm -hmm. do that every day. But the way I saw it, a lot of people say, well, God, how did you even do that? How did you have the, and I said, I just saw it as a very simple choice. Either I continue with my vertigo and my fatigue or I choose this. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm at home anyways. So like, I want to try to focus, not just do a rehabilitation practice, but focus my mind on something that's life affirming rather than constantly thinking about how miserable I feel. Yeah, 10 um, years is such a long time. Like, long we've been through our longest her longest flare has been like nine months and that seemed like 10 years mm -hmm. to be honest like it's just grueling and the ups and the downs the day where you're a little bit better and everything's moving in the right direction and you feel good about it and positive and we're going to make plans to do this thing and this thing and then it comes screeching and halting backwards and there's the ups and the downs and the disappointment like 10 years is I can't even honestly imagine it. Like that's such an exhausting am amount of time. Like yeah. you had to have lots of ebbs and flows of I'm never going to get better to I'm getting better to nope, I'm never going to get better. I mean, is that kind of like, it what was the mental process during that long of a. Yeah. But the thing is you don't know. Right. I mean, I think if someone had said, Oh, this is going to be 10 years. I mean, I would have been like, forget it. You know? So you don't know as you're going through it. Yeah. But when I finally decided, okay, I got to do something differently. You know, I am going to choose to live, not just to exist, but I'm going to choose to be alive. And so I did, uh, there was a turning point where I woke up every day and was like, you know, I'm just grateful for a new day. You know, I'm grateful for a new day with my kids. I mean, what was hard actually was being in a relationship, right? With, was my marriage, what, mm -hmm. because his expectations were still like, I could feel he was waiting for me to get back to where I was, where we were, you know, when I was fully uh, vibrant. And so really learning also how to both honor his process, but also how do we find each other when we're in a really different place. And so the way I, I describe it is I felt like he was very forward moving. He's also very optimistic. So he's always forward moving this way. And I was like, I was going down. I was like, I'm going to be present. I'm going to go deeper. I'm going to go into the root issues. I'm going to go into myself. My Qigong practice, thank God, gave me a framework to go into my body. So basically going into the place that scares me the most. And it was going into, you know, lots of grief. It was going into, and not just around my health. I mean, my health was a manifestation of all yeah. the stuff that had been shoved down from existential fear, from, you know, being a young kid to one thread that I write about in the book too, that I haven't spoken about is in medical school, I was uh, engaged to 
the first love of my life, Kurt, and he died um, when I was uh, an intern in uh, training. And it was tremendously difficult, but I was 28 at the time and people just kept telling me to live my life. So where did that grief go? I mean, it was out of my conscious mind. You know, I grieved him consciously as much as I could, but it just went straight into my body. So I had a framework then to begin to go gently in, but every day into my body, connecting to the part, you know, parts that scare me. Mm-hmm. And I would say one of the most profound lessons I learned was that you can't heal something you're disconnected from. And so, you know, a lot of meditation practices, a lot of psychotherapy, I'm all for it, but we tend to not be able to access in the subconscious. And, you know, before the call, you mentioned like hypnosis, there are a lot of different modalities to access the subconscious. Um, I had actually, I had tried hypnosis twice, um, didn't really do anything for me, but it was because it was so deeply locked into my body. So that was my way to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt supported, you know, by a framework and not just by an online program through Master Ming Tong, through, you know, a lineage that had been going on for thousands of years. And I thought, okay, people have done it. People have walked this walk. I'm going to do it. Um, and so what was fascinating and completely unexpected about that practice also, it took me back into, the, into my natal religion. I began to understand the Christ mysteries, you know, in a completely different way, like using energy, you know, in terms of like healing and miracles and things like that. So uh, I began studying again, you know, Christ and Jesus, his story, um, you know, the divine feminine and piecing things together and healing a lot of the trauma that I had um, with, you know, what I'd grown up with and understanding heaven and hell in a very, very different way. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And, and the, the perspective shift on it is on that Christ and energy and divine feminine versus heaven, hell, like the evangelical model couldn't be any further apart. And your upbringing with the fear, like you were scared of hell and scared of like, I was raised in, a, in Lutheran schools and, and it's not quite as um, hardcore as evangelical in the South, but there was a fear. Like I had an eighth grade teacher tell me when I was doing some something obnoxious in class that I was like literally going to go to hell. I, I grew up in schools where that was like a thing that teachers would say to children and then you believe them. And then I grew up with this, like, I'm going to hell. I'm a bad this, what's going to, you know, and that fear and losing someone at 28, like your first love, like grief, suppressed grief and suppressed fear and, I'm sure you've explored all these things now, but these are these are things like we we spoke before we came on air on how functional medicine is starting to acknowledge the importance of things like that. It's kind of at a crossroads where it doesn't really know what to do with it, but it knows they're important. And now if a functional medicine practitioner hears something like that on somebody's case history, it at least dings a bell. Conventional medicine, probably we're still 20 years off from, from that being the thing, but going into the body, like our whole economy and society is pretty much designed to stop people from from doing that and we stay up here and yeah. the stories and the thoughts and the mm-hmm. and the distractions of the grief too the first thing when like you said i've read a couple of books on on grief grief is actually a doorway of mine that i found to be like a gateway to feeling really alive and 
the one book says like in our culture, the first thing when somebody dies and you're sad and you're grieving is everyone tries to make you happy. Yes. They immediately try to get you back to normal. And you mentioned it like you need to live your life and or you need to come out with us or do this thing or move on or all of this. And the author of that book suggests, and I agree that it's because they're uncomfortable with your pain. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, that's an extreme example. I mean, one example that I think is more common is um, just parenting, right? A child crying. Mm -hmm. it, it, it is our desire to soothe that child. So um, I, it comes out of love, you know, it comes out of, yeah, like, I just we don't want to see someone that we care about mm -hmm. or someone that we don't even know, right? A stranger really suffer. And so I think for me, the, the aha moment was realizing that grieving is not suffering. What is suffering mm -hmm. is when, the, because we've privatized grief in our society. So grieving um, alone. When you grieve alone, you risk depression and despair, right? It's literally like crying, but mm -hmm. you don't have a lap to crawl into, right? So if you have this container, if you have people who are holding you, who aren't also in the middle of the same grief, right? They're not mourning mm -hmm. the same person who's lo you know, been lost. They're not grieving what's happening on the earth stage or you know what's happening with the environment like but that person who's grieving can be held literally in a lap and sometimes that lap actually can be mother earth right it can be just physically being on the grass mm -hmm. yeah. and being held so it doesn't have to be a person but if we can connect to that we we don't risk despair right and then we're also literally grieving we're releasing stuff that is just um draining energy i mean to say nothing of what it's doing to the physiology but just from a more binary standpoint is draining us mm. so i was like oh my god i had chronic fatigue like okay like what am i carrying around you're what carrying I, a lot carrying around for years like okay suddenly you know i'm on top of the world and i crash and so i can look at it now in hindsight and say well I crashed when I was on top of the world because I had the, actually the space to do that, right? I wasn't going, 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 going. I suddenly felt relaxed mm -hmm. and I relaxed and then I crashed. So I do have patients who say, oh, you know what? When I work my butt off, I'm good. It's just when I take a vacation that I have health problems. So I'm afraid to stop. And I'm like, no, that's actually, the, that's backwards. Yeah, right? yeah. You, you stop and you're telling your body you have time, but it, you know, um, at some point, right, you will potentially crash. So we want to really prevent that from happening. So um, yeah, absolutely. Grief, I think, is huge. It's really, really big. And uh, but again, I think a lot of we try to think it, we try to think it out. Mm -hmm. So the embodied piece is really important. So I did. I went to, you know, a few grief rituals, and the rituals are what again, rituals are just an embodied practice, right? So we're, we're moving our bodies. We're, you know, in church even, I was like, oh, we're doing rituals. We're, you know, we're whatever, holding our hands out like this. It tells our brain something different than if we're just thinking about it. Um, You're from around here. Did you do grief workshops with Francis Weller? Yeah, I did. I did. I wrote about the first one um, that I did in my book. Yeah. yeah. And, how, you know, I went to a few more with him. Mm -hmm. And then I've done also some with some friends, actually some other doctors who are intuitive, who practice intuitive medicine um, in different sort of expressions of it. And, um, but yeah, lots of ways to do grief rituals. Um, yeah. 
even you know in within a small um, setting as well, small private setting. Okay, I, I saw him on a on an online event like I don't know a year and a half ago, maybe give a presentation and it just blew me away. Like he blew me away. Like his his depth of connection to the grief practices that he teaches came across in a ninety minute discussion. Like. I watched a weekend long thing and his was the one that stuck like that. I was like, I need to work with that guy. And then COVID happened and his workshop shut down. So I couldn't um, go, but that's, I didn't expect this to take that turn. There were two other things I wanted to just one. I know you had like, I don't want to call it a relapse, but mm -hmm. you were a lot better yes. and the Qigong practice and the grief work and every embodiment practices you've done had gotten you to a place that you probably were ecstatic to be and life was quote normal and you were going on and, and with these practices in place, but then symptoms started to come back. Yeah. Well, they came back very suddenly. Oh, they and came back. very. I suddenly. wouldn't say life was normal, but I was, I was quite functional, you know, I, yeah. um, it wasn't normal, but it was quite functional. And then I had a, you know, a second health, I call it a health awakening now, but um, was it the same experience that you had in China? Very different some of the symptoms were similar but it came on just as abruptly it was 2017 so about three and a half years ago in the summer and um this one was i would say a lot scarier um because back then i knew there was a lot i didn't know i didn't know what i didn't know but i knew there was a lot i didn't know this one happened and i felt like i was at the forefront of internal medicine integrated functional medicine and and I had the intuitive medicine stuff too and I didn't know what the hell was going on so I was doing the right diet I was doing my supplements I mean I was you know I was doing the whole thing actually that was when I had a profound return to the Christ um, I had nowhere else to go and then I went deep into my qigong practice um, I also reached out to the medical intuitive again it wasn't even in that integrative functional medicine umbrella anymore it was completely out in this energy field. Mm -hmm. The way I describe it is like a kind of like a three month near death experience. It was just kind of prolonged period where I really felt like I was kind of suspended between a physical realm and whatever people want to call the soul realm. And uh, it was terrifying. So uh, I realized during that time that everything I'd been doing was still very much mind-based, even the intuition piece, you know, like oh, I'm using intuition in order to figure out what the answer is and that I hadn't actually surrendered. I didn't know that I didn't surrender until I was forced to surrender like completely. And um, what happened there was uh, I went deep into the Qigong practice and I was you know, practicing from my couch or from my bed. Instead of 30 minutes, 45 minutes a day, I was doing three to four hours. I mean, I kind of had no, people go, what? And I said, oh, some of it was, I was just connecting, you know, mm. um, consciously. And then, uh, and I said, sometimes I was just listening to, you know, a chant by my teacher. Um, so it wasn't, I wasn't like physically doing the practice for three to four hours. But I realized then after a while that my healing was nothing like the 10 year laborious struggle. It wasn't. I think everything is up and down a little bit, but it was small ups and downs, but just fast. Yeah. And so about three or four months into it, I started being able to get out of the house, right? And I went to a chapel that was very close to our house just to sit and just to be quiet and to meditate. And I never thought I would ever 
end up going back to church or whatever, a service. But lo and behold, the priest, it was an Episcopal church, um, just a couple of blocks away from my house. The priest showed up one day and then he was just like, hey, you know, we started talking. He invited me to go to um, a Christmas mass. And the Episcopal tradition also is very different than my evangelical upbringing. So I go um, and he invited me to give a reflection um, that following Good Friday. So kind of, you know, later in the spring. And by that point, you know, I was much, much stronger, but still I felt like, I don't, I don't know what the hell is going on, you know, with my body. So I give a reflection and I'm just basically talking about all, all that I don't know. I don't know. I'm struggling with my health. I'm struggling with my faith. And after that, it just, whoosh, and I realized that to stand up at, you know, in front of hundred, 200 people there, while I still didn't know, I actually released a lot of the shame that I had of being a doctor who hadn't figured it out. And it was, I don't know, it was just an experience of like complete forgiveness. Of For yourself, yeah. Exactly. And so the way I would describe it is maybe the first one was an awakening of the mind. And then the second one was really awakening of my heart and my spirit to something much bigger than myself. So with regard to the wisdom healing Qigong practice, it was, I realized that I had been very transactional before, right? I'm going to practice because it's another thing that I need to do. And then I'm going to get better. And as long as I'm getting better, I'm going to do it. And this was really much more just about uh, really connecting to my essence and, you know, connecting to the sun, you know? So then the way that I eat food, right? And the way that I take my supplements also feels different. So I had a certain rigidity to the way I was living my life. Manage, everything was very carefully managed that first time. And that's why it felt, it felt difficult, but I was grateful. And then the second time, after the second time, I have a freedom in my body that I never thought I would recover. So the recovery the second time is different than the recovery the first time. Oh, completely. Yeah, completely different. And it's not to say that I don't have ch more challenging days and, you know, better days. Um, I mean, I think that that just comes with life. But something happened with the fear. I don't fear or dread the crash. Well, actually, I haven't, knock on wood, I haven't had a crash. But, like, I don't fear that anymore, you know? And I have had days that have been challenging. And, you know, it's just like, okay, I know what to do you know what, this too shall pass and releasing the need to control. I think that's the hardest lesson is it's something that we usually have to learn by going through it. Yeah, it's, yeah. that's been our experience too. There's been so many lessons along the way that yeah. I wouldn't have chosen to learn. Yeah. And, uh, and people will tell you too, people have been through it who've been further along that journey when you're in it will tell you and I didn't want to hear it mm -hmm. from them I would get so mad when somebody would be like look you're going to really learn things through this and this I just wanted it to stop like yeah. I just I just wanted to stop I wanted to go back to how it was or I wanted to get past. I just I didn't want life to be what it was when it was like it was like I just we resisted like this can't be what it is this can't be happening to her this can't be happening to us and like that resistance alone from both of us was like gasoline on the situation. Like it fed 
for both of us, for me, it was mental health. Like it fed my depression and my anxiety and my panic attacks. And it fed that fed her flair mm -hmm. of when I would freak out more, her pain would get worse. And then I would freak out more. And then yeah. she felt pressure to feel better or else I was going to freak out. And then it was this cycle. And it's like, I'm just freaking out because I don't want you to be in pain. Like it was this one feeding into the other, into the other, into the other. And, um, and your the final thing you mentioned is the point of when you, you've had client or patients say that when they had a second to rest is when their situation would kick into high gear. Mm -hmm. And her second flare, the first one came on really sudden, really fast, really scary, tons of pain, went to the ER. They gave her a monster dose of prednisone. The pain went away. It was gone. We were like, whoo, whatever that was, good thing that's gone and not a thing. And then six months went by. I went through like an, a hellaciously insane, busy, stressful period of work for three months launching a film series that was up all night, all morning, all day, stress, bad on the relationship, stressful for everybody. The day the launch ended where that was over, her pain came back. Yeah. 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 And it was literally the first the day we could relax. Hormones, right. The stress hormones are just keeping you going mm -hmm. and then they stop. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. I don't look at cortisol the same way anymore as I used to, especially with conditions like this. It was the steroids that saved her life basically. And one of the flares and that is, you know, and then she ran a, a Dutch and her cortisol sum was like two. And it's, you know, people don't realize that cortisol isn't bad. <laughs> stress hormones aren't bad. When you don't have them, the inflammation goes out of control. And yeah, we were stressed, stressed, stressed. It comes down and it exploded. And um, so many lessons along the way. And your book was written in between, right? In between. The, the very, very final version of edits was due just when the second health awakening happened. And so what was really interesting was that, so I had to table it, I couldn't do it. And I told my publisher, I can't do it. As I was coming out of this second um, episode and I was coming back to writing, I said, I can't write this, this book isn't complete because the yeah. original version ended didn't have any of the intuition piece in it. Oh. It was like conventional medicine, functional integrative medicine, Better. You know, voila. And I said, this actually isn't true because, you know, and I've worked also enough with patients as a functional medicine doctor mm -hmm. to know also like it was kind of black and white, right? Mm -hmm. like, this one is incomplete. This one is complete. And I was like, no, it's not. I said, I have to actually introduce the mystery into healing. And so I, I added this whole other thread and I said, you know, what? and I had nothing to lose. I said, this is actually the truer story. Um, you can take it or leave it. I had a really, really great relationship with them. So it wasn't like, oh, ultimatum, take it or leave it. Well, yeah, because sometimes you go off script of what the book's supposed to be about Absolutely. and the publishers. That yeah. wasn't the book I signed the contract for, right? Yeah. So uh, I said, this is the book that I would need to publish. And they said, you know, we love it even more. So, um, so I had not enough time had passed yet beyond, you know, the second healing for me to actually understand what it was. So that part didn't make it in there. I wanna, just one comment. One thing that Francis Weller at the grief ritual had said was, and he said so many incredible things, but is that um, grieving is a solitary journey that cannot be done alone. Right? Yeah. So we all have to do our grieving, unfortunately. 
but we're not alone. Like we, we need the support of other people. And I have, uh, I have also applied that to healing and awakening. So we cannot, he, uh, healing and awakening are solitary journeys that cannot be done alone. So they are done in community, but we all have to do our own. Another thing that he, he had said was, I think he was uh, quoting somebody else, but two, two primary sins of Western culture, amnesia and anesthesia. We want to forget and go numb. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's a very, very common, it's just, it's just a human experience. You know? To move away from pain and towards pleasure is like a yeah, and there's nothing evolutionary. Wrong there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. It's just that if what we are forgetting and going numb to is our bodies, mm-hmm. um, there are some serious consequences to that, right? In terms of our health. Yeah. So um, it's not that pleasure is a negative thing. That's what we're working towards, right? Is balance and harmony and pleasure, deep, deep experience of aliveness in our bodies. Um, so when we go numb to pain, we also go numb to beauty and every other experience. Mm-hmm. So I still work with supplements. I thank God for them, herbs. How many hours a day now of Qigong? Um, well, it's hard to calculate because it's really a way of life, tapping in, connecting to the chi field right now. Um, but in terms of practice, I usually do a uh, consciousness practice, uh, qigong uh, consciousness practice before dawn. And then uh, after breakfast, I will do a, an embodied practice to, to build up the vessel. Beautiful. Well, you've inspired me to take my Qigong a little bit further. It's one of those things that I do most days and it's like a have to because mm. it's part of my training. Like it's daily Qigong practice and yeah. I always feel better when I do it. I always feel good when I do it. It's still on my list of like how you were with your structure. Yeah. <laughs> this is a thing I have to do. And I'm, I'm working to switch that to like a something I get to do and then be more of. Yeah. Um, so thank it's you for like, that. Yeah. yeah. It's like eating. It's like yeah. nourishing my body. Yeah, yeah. Another analogy I like is I'm just kind of plugging in and recharging, you know? Yeah. So, um, it, yeah. It feels, really good. it feels really good. Well, thank you so much for sharing so openly and so comprehensively. I feel like we got so much covered here and we'll have all the links below. Um, your website, CynthiaLeeMD.com. People can find you there and the book is there and your clinic information and a whole bunch of, you got great resources on there too. I reached out to a number of the doctors that you listed on your site when Mira was really sick um, to communicate and kind of try to find our way. And I have the ChiCenter.com is his website. I've got that bookmarked and it's beautiful. Looks like, have you been to New Mexico? Yes, I, I went there once right before the, the sheltering in place oh. happened. So uh, it was incredible. It was yeah. really incredible. Well, I'm, I'm going to bookmark this because this looks like not a coincidence. So um, we'll, we'll put his link down there too. We'll put any, any links that were relevant that you talked about here. Uh, we'll make sure that they're down below. People can find it. Um, check out her book. If you're going through a healing journey yourself or... If someone you care about is, and you want to better understand what they're going through, it was, there was, it took my wife about three weeks to get through it. And I would get like, I would go in and be like, how's Cynthia doing today? Because she was reading your book and 
she was in a really dark place when she was like, it was a really scary. This was the third time it was more severe. She was out of work. She couldn't be the nurse. Mm -hmm. She couldn't be the person that she wanted to be. And um, experiencing the arc through her, through you, like it was an interesting third party experience, but I was following your journey through her and it really opened her up to some things that we've now tried and implemented in her healing journey coming from conventional medicine herself she's an er nurse that um we wouldn't have probably done and so uh we we did it in the morning we do little qigong and she said she we we joke about it and she uh chi and cheese she said we would be making cheese like plurals of chi but then it would turn into we would make cheese in the morning is what we would call it and she would get up and she had a she had like a joint um meridian opening type of practice she got taught with a lot of these type of movements and and it helped and so every morning she'd get out of bed and her feet would hurt and she'd work through that and then we would make cheese for 15 20 minutes before we went downstairs and I think your book played a large part in, in that. So thank you. And thank you for turning your really difficult journey into a gift that you can, can share and it's your medicine then. So. No, thank you. Thank you for uh, having me here. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. And check everything out for real Click down there, go to the book, go to the website, go to his website, learn all the things. Thank you so much. rebelhealthtribe.com backslash kit to access the RHT Quick Start Bundle, which includes four full-length presentations from our RHT masterclasses, two downloadable PDF guides, and a 15% off coupon which you can use in our retail shop. If you're on Facebook, come join our Rebel Health Tribe group over there. And finally, if you like the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share with your friends. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you again soon.